Max, are we still going uh, skiing this winter? Did you ever like get your drug test out of the way? No, unfortunately I didn't, so I'm going to be stuck remanded to house arrest okay, are we recording? <laughs> during Veil Week. Yes. Oh, oh, oh shit. God, right. shit. Uh, welcome everyone back to the cutaway. As always, you're here with... Oh my god, what the hell was that? I think I the specter of the studio. Life. Yeah. <laughs> yes, you're back here with Max. This is real life. In TV, <laughs> real world. <laughs> real, uh, real world, this is Max, yeah. Uh, and I'm Max in first person. <laughs> welcome, welcome everyone, welcome so much. Uh, we're excited to announce that some local figures, quote unquote figures, some figures, the yeah. outside of the studio, <laughs> uh, have proudly and graciously given the cutaway their endorsement, and as such, we're going to give them some of our time right now. Right, uh, today's pod is brought to you by Diego Manchego, attorney at large. Ex-wife hassling you for alimony? Warrant due to an unpaid traffic ticket? Our creditors calling you 25-8. Holy shit, it actually says that in the copy. From the rent station down the block for that TV you leased nine months ago? Diego is your man. Call Diego Manchego, attorney at large, 427-324-3373. Brought to you by the USC School of Law. <laughs> uh, today's pod will again be featuring our global news and foreign policy roundup. Uh, brought to you by Roundup Pesticides. <laughs> yeah, Roundup Pesticides. Cigarettes, <laughs> give it an extra bite. Yeah, sometimes uh, in the morning you wake up for that cigarette and you're like, you know what? I think I'm ready to yeah, die I today. Feel like a bug. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm bugging out. Yeah. Uh, this Roundup will include the deadliest attack in Egypt's modern history, uh, Putin's war in Syria, and China and South Korea recently banning Bitcoin, and what this means for the broader implications for blockchain. Blockchain. I'm very excited to talk about some blockchain. Uh, and and later on today's pod, I will be taking everyone through just how bad Congress is fucking us right now. Um, they're working on tax cuts for the rich, installing idiots into lifelong federal judgeships, and most recently, um, dismantling net neutrality. And we're gonna have all that and more on today's episode. Wow, what a blast. blast. <laughs> what a blasty blast. All right, stick around after this break and we're gonna get started. Uh, my heart's racing because oh I got I got fifty birds in my ass. <laughs> I got birds flying straight out my motherfucking ass. God, the drip the drip on this stuff's really nice. <laughs> All right, everybody, welcome back to our fifth our fifth episode of the Cutaway. Can you believe well, I, part of me, Sound, part of me, kind of can. Yeah, I was gonna say, it feels like we've been doing this for fucking twenty years. All right, Probably so have. yeah, so. Austin is going to walk us through our second installment of the Global News and Foreign Policy Roundup, and today he's got some really... Uh, well, I think the title will have to change, because I'm pretty sure we'll be expecting a phone call from BBC any day now. <laughs> yeah, well, and not only that, but uh, we're still workshopping the name, so... Uh, I was going to say, we look forward to your input, but no, we don't. Shut we'll the fuck. Um, we don't want any of your fucking input. <laughs> we'll be advertising a workshop for people to come and join us and uh, brainstorm about the yeah. titles of our certain segments. Yeah, we're not, we're, not workshop, we're not workshopping any titles. We don't want your fucking opinion. Just sit there and listen. This ain't Santa's workshop. Yeah, this ain't Santa's fucking workshop. All right, Austin, <laughs> take okay. us away. Uh, two days ago, Egypt experienced the bloodiest terrorist attack in the nation's modern history seeing the death toll reach 305 people. The attack occurred in the North Sinai region, which is a region that's been uh, in, subject to military zoning recently because of the 
ISIS presence in the region. Uh, but in terms of what this meant for ISIS and to ISIS, uh, this particular attack represented a assault against um, ISIS's stance against uh, Sufism, uh, which um, they believe is idolatry because uh, Sufi Muslims hold Muhammad in uh, greater uh, positioning than other prophets within Islam. Um, so, uh, for those who don't know, Sufi Muslims uh, prioritize this degree of Islamic mysticism um, in their belief system, which involves uh, like these ascetic practices, basically. So they live a very uh, like the Buddhist life monks of pleasure, right? Yeah, like Buddhist monks. Yeah. So um, in this specific region, the Egyptian army had made uh, significant gains by pushing ISIS uh, out of their particular bases. Um, but this attack is a reminder that ISIS still has um, a great presence within this part of Egypt. Um, and sure, this is yet another case of people, uh, rather than joining a radically different religious counterculture, um, the individuals are attracted to ISIS for whatever reason. And it could be to uh, reaffirm the cultural values of uh, those who are marginalized, in this case, them against the uh, Sufi Muslims in the region, um, or those who simply exhibit what uh, psychiatrists would call antisocial personality disorder. Right, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, 305 people, body count aside, we're left with the same question in relation to ISIS that we've always had, which is, uh, could it be that ISIS uh, volunteers are drawn to a particular value system that's ultra-conservative, um, that asserts this aggressive uh, machismo um, that disparages steady work that they, they aren't given because of the political system or political framework that's in place that they're subjected to. Uh, and, you know, it sustains this impulse for immediate gratification um, as an escape from the tight social and political uh, environment that they live in. Um, is it that easy? You know, because a lot of these attacks are carried out by lone wolves. Granted, this particular attack was uh, fairly orchestrated. They had two bomb attack uh, explosions within the mosque and then uh, picked off people as they left the mosque. But is it what how we would typically view a, a terrorist attack before ISIS in that we uh, kind of assume that they are drawn to promoting uh, redemption through violence, loyalty, patriarchal, patriarchal values, self-sacrifice to the point of martyrdom. Is it really that simple? Um, even despite the fact that this part of Egypt had been relatively secure. So we're still left with the same questions, but maybe we're adding more dimensions as we go along. Right, and all of this to, to say also that the response from the United States was and this is an official White House statement, was that we need to build a wall with Mexico to protect ourselves from ISIS. <laughs> like, that, that's the type of response that we're getting. And all of this, too, sort of uh, almost contradicts, this attack almost contradicts the notion that, uh, you know, the United States has been successful um, with the help of uh, Iran and Russia, that, you know, we've been having these large-scale victories against ISIS in the Middle East, um, only to have this attack surface in Egypt. Um, so it, it almost, uh, it just goes to show that, you know, we're not fighting a conventional war. And I mean, I'll say that until I'm blue in the face, is that 
were faced with fighting an enemy, like you said, who they will carry out a massive attack um, with one perpetrator or a small group. It's right. not like a large scale, uh, you know, attack that we're looking at. Yeah, anything that separates um, itself from <clears throat> the very core ultra conservative principles that ISIS was founded upon. This time it's Sufi Islam. But yeah, I mean, the military response this time from El Sisi, which who many don't know, was the general that uh, silenced the uprising in Egypt uh, years before. His response was immense uh, air attacks on certain bases within the region. So it's kind of bizarre. Like, why would he, why would he wait until now to respond that way? Whatever. Good. Who knows? Um, so... Last week, uh, Vladimir Putin has uh, made an official declaration that the Syrian war is nearing its end. Uh, so now you know that it's true. You, right. we, heard, we heard from yeah. Vladdy Vlad, it's over. If there's anyone who speaks uh, the truth, it's Vladimir Putin. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, this declaration begins an effort to put a greater political stamp on uh, the conflict in Syria or uh, to reimagine uh, what the Syrian civil war could uh, indicate. Um, and in his speech, he made it very clear uh, who would be getting credit for the war ending, namely Russia, first and foremost, but also Iran, and Turkey, which represents the Syrian rebel side. So if Turkey, uh, <laughs> if Turkey uh, says it's okay, then the war is definitely over, right? Right, yeah, and we know that Erdogan, he's a real straight shooter. Right. Like, like, the, yeah. like, if there's anything that this guy's going to do, it's going to be tell the truth to help the United right. States. Like, <laughs> um, And so the main supporter of uh, the Syrian rebel opposition has, to this point, has been Turkey, Saudi Arabia, and Qatar. Um, and so if you have Turkey uh, as one of those three, then... Yeah, it's, it's a done deal. But this news uh, arises in conjunction with uh, Putin hosting President Rouhani of Iran and uh, President Erdogan in Sochi. So it kind of had that uh, that pretense going into the, the declaration itself. But um, in recent months, Syrian rebel groups have been pushed uh, from all but a few pockets of the country um, in Syria, while Kurdish fighters have all but eliminated uh, ISIS fighters um, within those specific pockets, the same Kurdish fighters who were not awarded their referendum recently. Um, but of course, uh, once these pockets of ISIS fighters uh, slowly get smaller and smaller, there will be some holdout groups like HTS, which is an, uh, basically an Al-Qaeda uh, Al Al offshoot. Um, but without Turkey, Saudi Arabia, or Qatar, there's no significant threat to uh, the Syrian regime, especially when the U.S. wants nothing to do with this. Um, but, you know, the war will continue in fits and starts. What Putin is saying is not necessarily or literally representative of what's actually going on. But he wants to send a major signal um, to the rest of the world saying that Russia is moving on to the next stage. And without us, uh, th none of this would have been possible. Which he, he is right about that. You know, for as much uh, flack as he uh, collects from the global community, like he is right about that, that yeah. a lot of what has gone on in Syria... Um, the success, I guess, that you could say whatever this pseudo-coalition has had against ISIS in, in, uh, in Syria, a lot of that would not have been possible uh, without Russia. In right. fact, a lot of it would not have been possible without Russia. Yeah, and so uh, in the same way Bashar al-Assad's regime um, has been rejuvenated only because of Russia. Uh, but to support that, uh, in the same declaration, Putin stated that Bashar al-Assad will implement these new constitutional reforms 
um, and conduct elections monitored by the UN, which we'll we'll see if that actually happens. Right. That's right. Right. Like I mean, like uh, you know, despotic uh, dictators often say, like, oh yeah, we're going to draft right. a constitution and it's going to be in line with you know uh, UN protocols, and we're going to work closely with the UN. They'll get on TV and say that, and then like literally like two weeks later, they're going to be like, okay, I'm uh, uh, usurping power, and, and it's just going to go back to the same environment that it was uh, before everything happened. Yeah, and people will look on the internet for those same documents where it said that they would implement uh, new reforms, and they'll just be gone from the internet. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, and uh, when I was uh, watching this interaction between uh, Assad and Putin on TV earlier today, uh, Assad, first of all, looks like he just got out of the hospital. He looks like deathly ill it just like very, half of the man that he used to be right it could also be like a, a double that the cia <laughs> right. has carved yeah. up and they're this like is, fuck it we couldn't put the weight on the fucking double yeah, we they, just couldn't do it they dug up his brother who died in that car accident who's supposed to be the president of syria right and, uh, who, and they he, turned him into a side he was racing a mercedes-benz right and yeah. just like blew up yeah anyway <laughs> right anyway probably because uh, uh al-assad blew him up <laughs> yeah he did it to his own brother but yeah um, Assad looks like the uh, eye doctor that he wanted to, <laughs> that he went to school to be. Uh, the the soft spoken um, dork English speaker who uh, married a English model. That's what he looked like when he was uh, shaking hands with Putin. Just looked like he was like like what is actually happening? Putin saving his country and his uh, his legacy. Putin, on the other hand, looked absolutely annoyed and terrified and z with zero eye contact. So very little difference than what he normally does. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. Annoyed all the time. He's like the world's richest man. He's yeah, got like hun likely. hundreds of billions of dollars stashed away in like dark funds like across yeah. the world. And like, he's like, I don't know why the fuck I'm still dealing with all of the problems <laughs> that I'm dealing with. I just wish that I could move to the fucking Caribbean away from Russia yeah. and the fucking cold and enjoy my money. Yeah, he, just, he probably just wants to be in the KGB again. Yeah, like torturing people yeah. and like living out in the fucking desert, like living in a camel stomach. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, the look that Putin has in his eyes all the time. He might want to marry Angela Merkel. Maybe he's in love with her. That wouldn't be a bad idea, Angela Merkel. What a catch! Right. <laughs> uh, but what what Putin is trying to do here is to change the psychological dimension of the conflict. You know, saying that the war is over and uh, Russia is responsible. But uh, why would he do this? So. Recently, uh, within the months that ISIS has been uh, dissolved and um, you know steadily decreased in size, the there have been re uh, reconstruction contracts that are likely to go to um, Russian firms and Iranian firms. Um, and when this happens, Western companies just aren't invited and they aren't involved um, because they weren't going to be involved anyway because they have no interest. Uh, but Iranian firms as well linked to uh, Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard, who we seemingly mention every episode, uh, uh, have signed similar deals to rebuild phone networks, mines, power plants, oil refineries. Um, and this is sort of uh, the only reason that Iran and the Revolutionary Guard are, are involved in this sense uh, would be because uh, Iran has the largest natural gas field in the world. Right, and a, and, a, and a lot of this reconstruction effort is 100% going to have to do with uh, money. Right. Like 100%. And European, 100%. the European Union getting the energy that it needs. Right, yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, Mr. Uh, Assad and his Iranian and Russian allies have uh, 
Assad's been given the proposal for the pipeline route that would um, give Russia all this money, which has seen, Russia itself has witnessed uh, a severe drop in um, in its success as a uh, oil provider for the and natural gas provider for the rest of uh, Europe. But yeah, I mean, in relation to what the U.S. is doing and how it's involved, Putin is taking the position that had been uh, advocated by the U.S. And this is Putin's moment to decide the fate of the Middle East, which is something we can never do. So hats off. Congrats, Mr. Putin. <laughs> uh, but I mean, it, it it is we are largely to blame because uh, Obama's foreign policy had underestimated Putin's tenacity and understood that the Middle East was a fool's error from the very beginning when he had no idea or uh, very little conceptual idea of what Russia being involved could indicate. Same thing goes with uh, Russian hacking before anything uh, in the news, anything that we see currently see in the news um, had occurred, but yeah. Right. So from the perspective uh, of what this indicates for the larger Middle Eastern policy, this is not all about Syria. You know, we mentioned a previous episode that the Kurdish referendum uh, was largely decided by Iran um, and the war in Syria uh, is coming down to Russia being the, the decider here. So. Right, and it just goes back to showing exactly like how large of a player Russia is in all of this. Yeah. And like you said, that I think uh, certainly uh, Barack Obama's administration um, underestimated uh, Russia, but previous administrations as well. But, right. Oh, uh, well, Bush, uh, Bush's famous quote, he was saying, uh, I looked into the eyes of that man and uh, talking about Putin, yeah, right. Yeah. What, you, what was the quote? So I, I looked into the eyes of that man and saw the truth. They're like, uh, saw, saw. No, I looked in, uh, looked into his soul. Yeah, yeah. Remember that? I'm pretty sure. I, I kind of, kind of wish George Bush was president again. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. Like, like, what a fucking disaster. We probably wouldn't have this podcast right. if he were the president. How awesome. Would, yeah, I wish we, you know what, fuck it. Let's pretend that it's 2004 and let's talk about Bush. Let's <laughs> right. yeah, re- rehash all these stories, <laughs> which are basically the same story right. over again. Exactly. Right. But instead, it's the Trump administration instead of the Bush administration. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, I mean, ultimately, uh, Putin's creating the situation in which the U.S. is uh, given no other choice than to go against Russia. And uh, we've seen how unlikely that's been, especially for the Trump administration and Michael Flynn. So, yeah. All right. Uh, moving on to Asia, where China and South Korea have recently banned Bitcoin. Um, late September, South Korea banned all virtual e-currencies, something that China had done earlier uh, weeks before. Um, and so this essentially indicates to uh, the public viewer of this new emerging technology that uh, regulators haven't figured out how to handle Bitcoin, nor blockchain being a new part of the market. Um, but the fact that China and South Korea, uh, all regulators, is indicating that all regulators are finally paying attention um, to blockchain uh, going mainstream, because it's actually becoming a, a part of the larger fabric of uh, financial transactions and um, how government and political systems operate, not only in relation to voting, but uh, in relation to uh, distant efforts. Um, so, not only that, but Bitcoin is starting to become a part of uh, people's like financial portfolios, the way that yeah. stocks were in yeah. the 2000s and in the 90s. Like people are diversifying through various like uh, Bitcoins because so, it's not Bitcoin is not just like one 
you know, com- there are multiple companies that deal in cryptocurrency, right. and you, you know, buy this crypto from them. Yeah, and a lot of companies are creating their own cryptocurrencies. Right. But I think the whole reason that we mentioned Bitcoin on a consistent basis is because of the shock value of us knowing that it was essentially created to buy drugs on the internet through the Silk Road. And- <laughs> Which, yeah, I mean, that's what, yeah, that was the entire point of cryptocurrency was to buy anything illegal on the internet. Right, yeah. yeah. Um, but recently, Bitcoin has risen uh, in value from uh, one thousand to seven seven thousand and seven hundred dollars, which, which is uh, incredible. Yeah, absolutely incredible. Um, so, like we were saying, there's been this uh, momentum in uh, public perception building that um, suggests that blockchain could revolutionize industry and uh, pose a threat to uh, governments across the world. Um, and a lot of these cryptocurrencies that are either being created through different companies or uh, these third-party lone wolves, um, that these cryptocurrencies are moving faster than anyone can regulate them. Um, and this is coming in, in light of many economists projecting that within five years, blockchain will, ha- will be everywhere, basically. It'll have uh, this macroeconomic uh, surge, and it'll kind of impact how we do a lot of different things. Right. I mean, I've had a, a lot of buddies of mine who work in the financial sector who have all told me um, that exact same thing, that within five to ten years, uh, cryptocurrency will either be everywhere or uh, governments across the world will absolutely shut it the fuck down. So basically this is like one of the biggest, um, well not, I mean this is probably one of the biggest uh, areas of speculation that we've had since the depression in the 20s because uh, people are uh, investing extremely heavily into cryptocurrencies on people who have the money to do it because it, you have to come to the, to, the, to the table with a lot of money mm-hmm. in order to be able to get into crypto. Um, but if you're able to do it within the next five years, it's either going to pay off fucking huge or you're going to be left with your dick in your hand <laughs> and a well, bunch of cryptocurrency. Right. It'll probably be the former because, I mean, blockchain's not going anywhere. Right, exactly. And, it's okay. kind of like uh, 3D print. You know how people say 3D printing is like the... Uh, greatest technological advancement since uh, the personal computer. Uh, blockchain is that same thing for... The internet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so how does blockchain actually work? Yeah, what is blockchain? <laughs> um, so digital records are basically kept across a, a distributed network. So this web of um, different users that are receiving these constantly rec- uh, reconciled records. Um, and each computer in the network would verify the info um, on the other user's computers. So there's no central server um, that could malfunction or be erased or manipulated in any way. So it's taking um, the one uh, plausible source of error and making it like, like an unthinkable amount of sources of possible error. Uh, which is a good thing, not a bad thing. Um, so these records are generally uh, public because the data is on millions of computers simultaneously. So the info is entered into the blockchain and it can never be deleted um, because there is no centralized means to disperse the information. Uh, and this allows strangers to trust each other um, because every operation is constantly checked by every other computer instead of one regulating central uh, monitoring 
device. Right. Basically, how I feel like blockchain is what is almost always referenced when you're watching some kind of like a technological crime thriller movie yeah, or right. TV show where they're talking about like, oh my God, I can't trace where the signal is coming from because there's no central server and it's bouncing through all these countries and blah, blah, blah. That's blockchain. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like literally people have been, have been uh, referencing blockchain for like years, probably decades by now when they talk about like, you know, uh, hacking in like the movies or TV shows or whatever. They're just but, misrepresenting it. They had no idea right. what they were talking about. It's like, you know, it's one of those things where like science fiction always becomes reality, but these right, people yeah. didn't even know what uh, right. they would eventually become. All, right. All the while, uh, this sort of technology was being developed and spoiler alert, like now we have it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but this will make hacking uh, more difficult but more exciting because uh, hacking a blockchain would take an endless, seemingly an endless amount of time and uh, just a huge team of people uh, to do so. Which means the people that are going to be doing it uh, will belong to some uh, major government, either right. China or Russia <laughs> or the United States being last right. among the you know nations that would be able to do it. But yeah, I was going to say China. Yeah, so it makes be, sense why China would uh, ban the use of blockchain. They're probably already working. I was going to say they're already working on hacking right. into blockchains, right? Um, so yeah, I mean, like we were saying, this has an immense impact on uh, political systems and financial industries abound. Um, so imagine boating or medical records or um, global shipping industries and how... Uh, many like unnecessary parts of a uh, process would be eliminated. How many um, overhead costs would be eliminated? And because it relies on this very unique code to different users or different um, computers within the chain, it would be very secure. So, I mean, for example, you're seeing uh, apps developed to track supply chain of um, the fishing industry in Indonesia or uh, clothing in uh, other parts of Asia. Um, and likewise, um, many banks and consulting firms are already using uh, blockchain to send financial transactions, um, and it'll be like a, a very critical tool for financial intermediaries, such as uh, what Max was mentioning, the stock exchange, money transfer services um, that rely on, that used to rely on a central database to project all of these things. Um, blockchain would eliminate all of this by having. Uh, like one culprit in the uh, chain. Right, and a lot of this too has to do with um, streamlining the process of um, any kind of like secure uh, online information. Right, yeah, Like exactly. That's like the, the positive outcome of a blockchain is, you know, when you're talking about it in terms of um, like the dark web or, you know, uh, dirty money or whatever, um, yeah, then it has negative implications, but blockchain also has, it, as it becomes more incorporated into your daily life, it makes, on, like, from a smaller, like, localized view, it makes online shopping safer. It yeah. makes uh, sharing of any kind of sensitive uh, information, even if it's just, like, inf uh, you know, online information that has your social security number on it or something right. like that. It makes uh, sharing and transmitting information like that um, easier and safer. Right, yeah. And um, interestingly, it might actually destroy the foundation from which it uh, arose because blockchain will eventually uh, start to destroy, uh, like you are saying, dark web, um, the, you know, this dark web environment where uh, money, money laundering and um, terrorist organizations would uh, basically steal money from people. Right, exactly. exactly. Yeah, and I think that... Um, any of these, you know, tools that are normally used by um, 
hackers, if they're implemented into daily life, like you said, it eliminates, uh, or at least it lessens um, their, you know, ability to be used to like right. steal your money. Basically, that's what it's about. Yeah. Um, but in terms of in terms of uh, how government could use blockchain, um, we've already seen this in the form of the UN partnering with Microsoft and uh, Accenture, which is a uh, a firm um, giving refugees like a permanent identity record using biometric data. Biometric data is basically every uh, bit of information you can get from someone, uh, excluding like their name and demographic. Um, but additionally, in terms of where governments uh, would affect or be affected, um, there's a divide in what expectation actually um, is. So Bitcoin traders, which are the people making money off of blockchain right now, will say that um, that this is the time to like remove money from the government, uh, by, you know, what I'm saying is stealing money from the government, because these governments are una unable to use um, a way to track like people who uh, are unable to use like an official banking system. Right. Um, but also blockchain is only a threat to governments if they ignore the technology, which is what we were saying. You take uh, something that was created uh, out of malicious intent and just try to implement it in every single way that you can to increase efficiency and uh, uh, decrease theft. Right, exactly. And I think that the benefit to um, to like mainstreaming uh, <laughs> Bitcoin is that... Um, like I said, it adds an extra level of security. And really, um, I think just like with anything that has to do with um, the government not wanting something to exist, um, there's, you know, someone shorting the, you know, uh, blockchain market, as it were, um, and betting on the fact that it's going to fail. And how do the how do governments and the people that support politicians uh, make that happen? Um, by having a fix on the game and there's something inside working against blockchain. Um, however, I think that uh, even, you know, legit tech people, um, to some degree, um, totally underestimate the power of what this tool is because of where it came from. This is a tool that came from the dark web, um, and that's where things that are really effective are created, especially yeah. when it comes to, like, anything that has to do with tech. Um, if some hacker is making it in his garage... Uh, which has more computing power than, like, the NSA. Yeah. Because um, <laughs> the, the product is so malicious and exploitative. Right, yeah, exactly. And if the... There's there's absolutely no way that you can, you know, combat this. Like, fighting it is like trying to fight the tide, really. Right. Yeah. Um, but, like we were saying, uh, this is five to ten years away, and currently developers are using blockchain, blockchain to uh, get rich, like they always had. But um, companies, firms, businesses... Are creating their own cryptocurrencies to raise their own capital, um, but questions still uh, remain: Are startups real? Or are they a scam? It's anyone's guess because we don't have this. Uh, first of all, the pop popular perception is not conducive to what blockchain actually is and what what it will become. But also, um, a lot of people uh, aren't actually using it. Right. So, I mean. Ultimately, it really is, and, and we talk about this a lot. I mean, this is almost like the de facto answer to most things. Um, emergent technologies is we're just going to have to wait and see um, because this is a piece of technology, like you said, where there are all sorts of developers that are uh, creating their own forms of cryptocurrency, and there are people who invest in tech all the time that are very active online and social media and stuff who are talking about, well, I have 
X amount of my crypto portfolio in this and X amount in this and X amount in this. And there are some companies that are um, emerging as leaders in cryptocurrency. But, uh, you know, like we also said earlier on in this segment, it'll take a few years to really see yeah. what the like true like leaders are in, in this technology. So I guess we shall see, really. I wish I had something more uh, profound to say than that, but really it's just a waiting no, game. Yeah, yeah. All right, everyone. Well, stick around, and we are going to move on to domestic news following uh, this message from one of our sponsors and a brief break. Stick around. Okay, everyone, we are back, and we have a word uh, actually from our very first sponsor, the Cutaway team here. We're very proud uh, to endorse our first product. This is all because of QVC reaching out to us and um, allowing us to do this. Right, and and please uh, bear with me. Um, I'm a little bit nervous. I'm reading some of the copy um, that they sent over to us. Yeah, don't go Um, to jail. But we are proud to endorse our first product. We use it every single day um, to ensure our health, strength, and uh, ability to resist attacks from the deep state and liberal establishment. Okay. Uh, Visit the Cutaway's Facebook page for links to purchase Shalalix Clones' Bone Marrow Broth Protein Powder. Wow, how incredible. It comes in three flavors. Comey should have been fired earlier cocoa, beleaguered Jeff Sessions Berry, and Clan Hood Vanilla. Order now. It's that Chinese science. <laughs> people, uh, people eat bone marrow broth soup in China. Right. Well, and, and our good friend who's maybe or maybe not Alex Jones um, is asking us to support um, sales of his bone marrow yeah, broth. Chinese hoax. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's not the Chinese hoax. Um, all right. So we are back um, and we are going to be talking about um, some domestic developments here. Um, and Austin, uh, lead us off by talking about the future of the uh, CFPB. Yeah. So this is a new story that perhaps may have been uh, ignored or um, briefly touched on. Yeah, I think it's just starting to break into about. a new cycle. Yeah. Um, but Richard Cordray, he's the, or had been the director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, or the CFPB. Um, he announced recently that he will leave the agency at the end of this month. Um, for those uh, who are unaware, Cordray had been a pretty tough regulator of banks and other financial institutions, um, and a by, by default a frequent target of Republican lawmakers. Uh, most recently, Congress killed a rule by the Bureau that allowed consumers to bring class action lawsuits against banks and credit card companies to resolve right. financial Which means when they steal your money, you can't sue them. Right. Like that's the, exactly. that's the, that's the yeah. simplest way. When they yeah. steal your money from you because there are laws that allow them to do it, you can't sue them for it. Right, yeah. Um, so Cordray famously have been known for uh, forcing the nation's biggest financial institutions to return uh, collectively $12 billion to the people they cheated and uh, have been seen as one who held banks immensely accountable in the same light that uh, Elizabeth Warren is seen as one who holds banks accountable. And in fact, she's being uh, she's considered to be the replacement for Cordray. Right. And also, all of this is to say, and this is something that is certainly going to go into um, a future episode, um, 
or at least some sort of uh, segment, is that the CFPB um, was implemented, this is just very brief, was implemented immediately following the economic collapse in 2008. It is a nonpartisan bureau that's sole purpose is to make sure that consumers of financial products are not getting screwed by the people that offer these products. There is a similar bureau that is has been in place to protect consumers of physical goods. Um, for instance, they make sure that there was a really good analogy I saw on Twitter earlier today, actually, that said that this other bureau for physical goods makes uh, ensures that you do not buy a toaster that is going to catch on fire. <laughs> Similarly, since financial products, um, which is exactly what they are, products are offered by banks, um, are should be treated the exact same way as a, a physical good that you buy. Um, so it'll incinerate your bank account. <laughs> right. So what this or, what this regulatory body does um, is ensure that banks are held accountable for all of the shady shit that they're doing. Because we all know the financial collapse in two thousand eight was caused by banks just having a free-for-all um, since they were so highly deregulated by Bill Clinton um, that they were able to do whatever the hell they want. They practiced predatory loan um, practices. Um, they engaged in all sorts of really shady shit, um, you know, false advertising, bait-and-switch interest rates, um, you know, hundreds of shady uh, business practices that ended up uh, nearly totally melting down um, the global economy. Um, so this regulatory body was put in place to ensure that banks are checked. And so it's not like a liberal agency. This is not a, uh, headed by Democrats. This is a nonpartisan um, governing body that is meant to check uh, banks and financial yeah. institutions. And so therefore, um, you know, fiscal conservatives or the GOP is not a fan of it, nor are bankers who are the people that back the GOP um, lawmakers financially. So right. that's why it's coming under fire. The GOP's interpretation of, um, you know, Elizabeth Warren's brainchild and Cordray's uh, current engagement uh, was that it, you know, conducted these unlawful activities and regulations um, and kind of mismanaged the markets in a way that uh, the participants were not allowed to process, which is uh, it's a fair analysis, but it doesn't really make uh, it right when uh, these same banks, for example, Wells Fargo, uh, you know, allowing their employees to open fake accounts just so they would make their um, sales targets. Right. Absolutely fucking incredible. Um, so And the Equifax data breach. Right, which was huge. Which huge news stories. Right, and that actually was part of the reason why, or should be part of the reason why this, huge, this whole, like, you know, no collective action against banks um, being shot down should be a bigger story. Um, but why don't we, uh, Austin, talk about this uh, domain spoofing? Yeah, um, so this is another um, Russian <coughs> cyber development that we have to deal with. But uh, domain spoofing is basically uh, the use of bots um, that are creating fake versions of their of different companies or different publications' websites. Um, so a huge online advertising scam recently has been exposed uh, that could be costing businesses. Um, mainly in the U.S., but it, uh, abroad as well, um, a little over uh, $1.3 million a day. So over the past eight weeks, thousands of publishers, um, namely The Economist and Financial Times, these brands uh, were had been buying advertising space on these fake sites brought, uh, in, created uh, for promotions and for advertising. 
um, but they were designed in a way uh, for them only to be seen by computers and not human beings, meaning that these advertisers, uh, for example, like we were saying, The Economist and Financial Times, uh, were wasting money and uh, missed out on people buying their information. So, um, this, Methbot. Yeah, Methbot. <laughs> Methbot. That's what I'm not, yeah, I'm not making that up. It's not one of these random things I had in the... <laughs> which, I mean, I'm sure a lot of, I'm sure there are a lot of rappers out there in Southern... Where are you from in Florida? Another <laughs> <laughs> name, Methbot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, or anywhere. Probably down the street. Yeah, I was going to say, right? Living in Five Points here yeah. in Columbia. Um, so, the, uh, this new bod dubbed... Hyphy bot. Hyphy bot. We getting hyphy in Colombia. Right, which is one of these domain spoofing uh, <laughs> bots uh, had seen as being three to four times uh, the size of Methbot, which was a previous scam, uh, but had been designed to do the same thing. And Methbot uh, had originated in Russia and used a network of other bots to uh, imitate uh, views um, of as many as 300 million video ads per day. Which, that's that's fucking wild. 300 million. <laughs> yeah. yeah, if you're a company looking to advertise and you think 300 million people are going to see it every day, yeah, you'd fucking yeah. pay anything to get on there, probably. In, including... Uh, I wish I created Methbot shit. <laughs> yeah, we might later. Yeah. Um, we'll be smoking some Methbot in the studio. Yeah. We're cooking these bots off the stove. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's about it. Just another um, Russian, a, lo- a little piece of Russian tomfoolery to think about. Right, exactly. And I, I hope that people out there realize exactly how serious Russian hacking is in across like all fields. There's yeah. literally nothing that they don't hack. Right. Like literally, and some of it is just to be a troll. It's like some of it have, like is to make money or to have political influence. Some of it is just because. Like. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So now we're going to shift into uh, almost like another roundup of domestic news. Um, I'm going to try to catch everyone up on what has been going on with the latest round of tax legislation that has been passing through uh, Congress. Um, As of late, both chambers of Congress have uh, taken drastic steps to give massive, permanent, permanent, very important tax cuts to the wealthiest people in the United States. Um, we could really dedicate a whole episode uh, just to the vast provisions within the new tax code that are terrible for the middle class um, or for the majority of America for that matter. Um, so instead, I'm going to give you a few things that you should know about Paul Ryan's baby. And Ayn Rand's. Right, Ayn Rand's baby. Um, for starters, this whole uh, round of uh, tax reform is basically just being pitched as a tax cut for the middle class. However, Recent analyses provided by the Tax Policy Center, which is an independent uh, fiscal policy organization, recently found that over 50% of U.S. families will experience an increase in taxes, while 98% of the top 10% of earners will have a tax break, which means that 93 million families in the United States are going to see an immediate tax increase, while almost the entirety of the top earners in this country will get a drastic permanent tax break. And uh, the incredible thing is exactly how these people, how we're paying for this tax break. In order to pay for a $50 billion tax cut to the top 10%, 
over $300 billion, with a B, in funding um, to Medicare, Medicaid, and subsidies to families uh, making under $50,000 a year will be cut. Um, and to simplify that, you can see this as useful components of the social safety net are being dispensed with um, in order to pay for this tax cut. And that's only one element that is being uh, scrapped in order to pay for this tax cut. They're also doing things like eliminating certain types of deductions for lower income people um, and for uh, working class Americans. Um, we discussed in a previous episode that initial proposals for the tax cuts would eliminate um, certain deductions, like I just mentioned, um, and many of those are actually making their way into the final bill. Um, some of these deductions are actually affecting my demographic of graduate students. Um, it's getting to the point where student loan and uh, tuition abatements will no longer be deducted, um, which is fucking terrible, particularly the, the latter part, the tuition abatement. Part of what goes into being a graduate assistant is that you get your tuition paid for by your financial institution. And under the current tax code, um, that is not counted as income or can be um, deducted from your taxes or the amount of tax uh, that you pay. Um, under this new tax code, um, it would automatically include your tuition abatement as earned income. Um, so for instance, if your stipend, which is the salary that you make as a, as a TA, um, if your take home is, let's say, $25,000, um, if your tuition abatement is worth $30,000 a year or $40,000 or $50,000 a year, all of a sudden your tax bracket goes from you're a $20,000 or $25,000 or $30,000 earner to all of a sudden you're an $80,000 um, earner, um, which means that you're still taking home the same amount of pay. Your take home is still twenty, twenty-five, dollars or $30,000, but you're paying taxes as if you're earning $80,000 a year. Um, this is just one of the many shitty bacon bits on this suck salad. Um, and uh, basically, this is a, I view this as a direct assault um, from the Trump administration um, on who his base views as the coastal elite. You know, people who are um, more than just, you know, high school or college educated. The people who um, end up, you know, being professors, educators of any sort, um, Policymakers, people that work for um, think tanks that directly oppose, um, you know, the GOP's um, agenda. Um, another deduction that has been eliminated um, applies to teachers. Um, deductions for teachers um, have been eliminated in order to pay, to pay for the repealing of the estate tax, which is a key component um, of this uh, tax legislation. Um, uh, and also, it will allow um, for people who own private planes and golf courses to make deductions based on expenses for that um, at the expense of teachers being allowed to deduct the expense of um, out-of-pocket expense on classroom uh, supplies um, and anything basically that they need for their job. Um, this means that over 800,000 teachers will no longer be able to deduct out-of-pocket expenses like I said um, and essentially all of this would pay for um, one person not having to pay taxes on uh, their estate. So literally, um, to simplify this, 800000 suffer so that one person will gain. So all of these uh, deductions for teachers, for example, uh, the deductions that are, um, being, that are affecting grad students, yes, these are uh, new developments in this tax saga for uh, Trump's 
residency, but also uh, other features of tax policy that we uh, that will continue to surface with uh, within the news cycle, like uh, like reduction of corporate tax, uh, international provisions that were originally in the tax tax legislation, um, taxes on interest rates, uh, and I mean there are many other features that. We have yet to consider in terms of like what's actually what Congress is actually going to do, right? And a lot of this too, it's they're trying to nickel and dime um, the working and middle class uh, in order to pay for this tax cut. And like I said at the beginning of this uh, brief segment, is that uh, there are dozens of really just terrible provisions within this new tax code, um, but it all can be summed up to say that this new tax code will actually raise our national deficit by trillions um, in order to pay for, I can't reiterate this enough, a permanent tax cut to the top earners in this country. This is not like a temporary thing to try to, um, you know, uh, catalyze some sort of trickle-down theory. This is like a permanent round of tax cuts um, to the top earners in this country, most of whom are billionaires in the finance sector um, that make up the GOP donor class. Um, and then the other provisions that, well, within the bill are actually meant to punish wealthy people in blue states um, and who are uh, Democrat donors. Um, what, can, what can we do? Great question. <laughs> you can call the Senate switchboard, and I'll give you the number. It's 202-224-3121, or you have a computer in your pocket and on your phone, you can Google it, and explain to them that you are opposed to the provisions um, that would increase the deficit at the expense of the middle class. That's all you really need to know about this, is that this is going to raise the national deficit to pay for tax cuts for wealthy. And if the, you can put it into this uh, perspective, if the ACA is the one piece of legislation that the Obama administration uh, is known for, and I guess will be known for in some some regards, this new uh, tax uh, fiasco will be Trump's legacy and Trump's presidency in a nutshell. Right, that'll be his legislative uh, victory, undoubtedly, um, and that's that's what he's been running on. That's what his promise has been. Um, and I, I have no problem keeping everyone up to date on this because the ACA is actually uh, sort of intertwined with this round of tax cuts because they're going to do away with the um, the individual mandate in this tax code, um, which would essentially just totally nuke the, the ACA. <laughs> yeah, finally gone. Right. Um, but now for the one of the bigger stories of this last news cycle um, that's actually come up recently is this fight for net neutrality is really coming to a head. Um, and this will actually affect your daily life. So and it's, sometimes it's hard to see how healthcare reform or tax reform will actually affect your daily life. Um, but this net neutrality will. Um, when you research news related to tax reform or healthcare reform, this is the legislation that will affect whether you can actually look it up. Or not. Right, and what kind of coverage you'll see about it. Right. So the SEC has uh, has taken major steps towards completely dismantling net neutrality provisions. Um, before we get into how they're doing that and what that could mean. Um, a lot of people have probably seen the term net neutrality floating around without actually knowing what it means. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about um, what net neutrality is and you know how would getting rid of it affect you. Um, and before I get into that, Bess Kalb, who she is a former writer for The New Yorker, um, recently summed things up pretty well in a thought-provoking, articulate, and nuanced tweet that only an Ivy League educated writer could produce. 
Um, she says, net neutrality means corporations can't pay to manipulate how you use the internet. Porn. If this goes away, not only will all of your, all of your data, porn habits, be scrutinized by telecom companies. They can decide how fast your internet works on certain websites. Your porn won't load. Uh, <laughs> Wait, is the Ivy League educated writer puts this in her tweets? Yes, <laughs> this is actually this is one of many oh, tweets no, in a thread. No, I just didn't leave it. Uh, and and she's really not wrong. Net neutrality provisions are in place to ensure that internet service providers, uh, also known as ISPs, cannot charge you more money to visit certain websites. Um, they can't temper speeds to sites that favor the ISP and can't track and monetize all of your online activity. They already do that to one degree or another, um, but totally deregulating um, net neutrality uh, would mean that every single piece of information that they can find out about you, they will use and monetize it um, without your uh, consent. Um, And unlike with the repercussions of most other large legislative action, um, there's no way to truly know what ISPs will do in this country with lax net neutrality laws um, because, you know, uh, there's no regulatory body that start, that predicts these things like uh, the CBO. Um, however, it's not a far stretch to say that with eliminating net neutrality laws for, for a company like Verizon um, would allow one of their users to use Yahoo, which is a search engine that they own, for, you know, quote-unquote free as a part of their basic paid service. However, if that same user wanted to use Google, Verizon could charge you an extra monthly fee on top of what you're already paying um, just to use Google. And this can be extrapolated across the whole spectrum of Internet services. ISPs could theoretically charge you a basic Internet fee that would provide you access to just uh, standard ISP-owned services. And on top of that, these ISPs could then do one of several things, but the two most likely options are, one, that they could charge you for separate internet packages on top of the basic fee. So let's just say that um, your basic internet package through whoever your ISP is is $100 a month, and you want to go online and check your Twitter, Facebook, whatever kind of social media that you use. You have to buy the social media package for $10 a month. You want to read the news that you like to read? News package for $15 a month advanced search engine package or something similar to that, $20 a month. And these are just a few things that would likely happen under that scenario. So basically what they would do is start bundling packages of the internet that they don't already own and charge you extra money to use them. So what used to be, a, let's say, a $100 total free pass to the internet would now turn into a two, three, or $400 a month um, internet bill to use sites um, that you want to see. Or... We could see ISPs charging certain tech companies more money to pay for certain band- bandwidth speeds, uh, which basically already happens. Um, Netflix has paid out the yang for higher bandwidth speeds uh, with certain ISPs, which is actually protected under uh, our current net neutrality laws. Um, but with any of them repealed or pared back, um, this would likely happen across the board in favor of services provided by ISPs and would throttle the speeds of services provided by companies not owned by the ISP. So like I said earlier, um, with the Yahoo and Verizon analogy, that could be extrapolated across the whole of the Internet. And basically any website that is not owned by your service provider, they could uh, lower the speed of that website, thus de-incentivizing you to use that site and only use theirs. Um, 
In similar fashion, the ISPs can even block certain websites, um, thus legally censoring parts of the internet that don't generate them the income that they think they deserve. Um, and you know, this leads us to ask, why is any of this happening? Um, Ajit Pai, who's the head of the FCC, says that he's paring back current net neutrality laws that were put in place by the Obama administration that he dubbed, quote-unquote, heavy-handed. Uh, just as an annotation, um, the dissolving of the Obama-era uh, net neutrality laws reshaped the Communications Act. The uh, Communications Act mandated the FCC to take care of telecommunication consumers, so... Um, the FCC had to like rebrand the internet services as no longer being telecommunication services, uh, but also but as like uh, like a technology service. So it kind of gives uh, the larger companies that are that Max was describing like the ability to make their own rules and uh, operating procedures. Right. It's under the guise of like. Um cultivating like more competition and thus getting a better product right. um, but it's sort of become like convoluted in the process of doing so um, you know Ajit Pai like I said head of the FCC claims that he's going to return the internet to its freer older self um, that existed for 20 years before Obama's net neutrality laws um, and you know where did all this come from um, you know Ajit Pai is not necessarily a total Trump guy um, but when it comes to um, deregulating anything that has to do with the Obama administration, um, you know, he's all on board. Um, he was originally nominated, actually, by Obama in 2012 to fill a Republican position within the FCC um, and then was appointed to chair the FCC by Donald Trump with the renewal of his five-year tenure by the Trump administration this past October. Um, and like a cursory search of his uh, longtime policy stance since his days in the uh, private sector working for Verizon actually um, has been that the FCC should have minimal set regulations and should be as nimble as the tech sector. Um, and from one standpoint, that sort of makes sense is that um, having fewer set regulations will allow the FCC to sort of do like what we talked about, like what, what uh, China does is how they regulate things along the way. Um, as opposed to having to totally overhaul regulations um, with emerging technologies. Um, however, I don't think that he means it that way, um, where he actually believes in regulation to sort of make sure that tech companies aren't screwing the consumer, is that he means it in terms of pure, unbridled, zero regulation, allow the tech companies and ISPs to do whatever they want. Um, it like it, Not likely, it always has to do with somebody making money um, from this. And uh, so um, in terms of content, though, the 2015 uh, reassessment of net neutrality that uh, Pi is referring to, it reinforced something called the general conduct standard, which before anything in 2015, the FCC had zero authority to discuss uh, content online. And so in 2015, they were given all of these new procedures to begin to regulate what was online. Um, the general conduct standard, though, would decide if anything uh, violated free expression online. And so when Pi's predecessor uh, was asked how the conduct standard would be, would be implemented, there was a kind of the state of confusion and people were unsure. But they uh, implemented something that was restrictive and that's all that mattered because uh, it was it was a measure to uh, crack down on crime related to terrorism, basically. Right, and, and that's like what a lot of the, uh, this fight to deregulate um, the FCC, it's, they view any sort of regulation at all as like an affront 
to there to like making money when in reality um you know it's it's been proven that like a free open internet is like the only uh, think about this would you actually start paying to use facebook every month no you know I would be more than willing to get off social media to not have to pay $10 a month just to go on Facebook and Twitter. I mean, um, it's like taking all the good parts of the internet that you like, which is getting everything for free right now, and taking that away. Um, and like I said, there's so that's no- what happened in 2015. So when the when people were unsure of what uh, these new uh, the new general conduct standard would uh, look like. What it looked like eventually became became uh, an investigation into free data offerings by wireless companies. So, like T-Mobile, allowing you to have unlimited data for a certain amount of time. Um, what was introduced in 2015 was uh, that free data offering was in violation of the conduct standard that they created. So that gave the FCC unwarranted uh, room to meddle in, uh, like what. Pi is uh, considering pro-consumer offerings. So it's both sides. Right, and a lot of that too had to do with this. Is And I, I remember this it was part of the like net neutrality argument when it came to cellular data, is that what inter- what these providers were doing was offering like exorbitant amounts of like uh, data usage. So you either have like, you're paying for unlimited data usage or you're paying for something like 20 gigs of data usage every month, which I use a lot of cellular data and don't come close to using 20 gigs of data every month. So what these ISPs would do or what these cellular providers would do is throttle your internet the more you used. So you're paying this whatever your monthly fee is and your internet might be really fast for like the first two, three, four, or five gigs of usage and then after you passed a certain threshold, the companies would start like throttling your internet and screwing up with your usage, and actually some of what it had to do with exact, was exactly what I mentioned. Anything that wasn't related to your cellular provider, like any third-party things that they weren't getting money off of, they would like super throttle the speed of it. And so that's why um, I think a lot of that like you know fair usage and the conduct thing was implemented. Right, but now it's being overturned. Right. Yeah. Well, because everything's going to go back to being you know, super deregulated or whatever, and we're left at the mercy of, <laughs> of tech companies. Um, to avoid the problem that you just described. Right, yeah. And uh, well, hopefully to avoid the problem that we just described. Um, uh, but this is all being, um, it's all coming to the surface because Trump is worried that uh, networks that have been picking on him and making him feel bad uh, are not giving equal time to uh, every dimension or every right, aspect yeah. of the story. Right, exactly. And... Like like I said, it, if deregulating meant actually like truly keeping up with, um, you know, the rapid advancements within the tech company, great. Um, but the probability of eliminating net neutrality laws actually would likely mean higher consumer costs um, uh, should then rather if the provision stayed in place. So but if you see the, the problem with the because this happens in Europe too is that like well, they yeah. have zero net neutrality laws there and you have to like I well everybody uses Wi-Fi in Europe no, like, you're you're all on your personal uh, service right you don't move around to a cafe and then in your car and then to your office I mean right. they're not like different places right and like I said like well yeah but the the scenario that I laid out where you have to pay ten dollars a month to use social media your social media package that's not like 
something that I just came up with. That's something right. that happens in, <laughs> in Europe. And um, here where we have had really great net neutrality laws um, for several years, for decades, um, I don't think uh, American consumers would be prepared uh, for what that would actually mean to them cost-wise. Uh, well, the, the cost benefits would come later. So the, the problem with the 2015 re legislation was that it treated every internet service from like a very small town, uh, mom and pop internet provider to uh, someone like AT&T, it treated them all the same way. Because it was a, a resort back to 1930s uh, like monopoly rules. Right, yeah. And so what people don't understand is that when everything's regulated uh, incrementally, like in China, like we were mentioning, um, there's a restriction on uh, a freer market and economic growth and the chance for people to uh, come to the surface and uh, drop down to the floor, that sort of thing. So when you uh, take away that layer of, um, you know, this airtight vacuum of not being able to uh, compete, um, then, yeah, I mean, the, the costs are going to stay the same. However, if you allow smaller businesses to succeed, then those uh, same businesses will eventually cut costs for consumers. And I think right. that's the larger plan here. Right. And I, yeah, I was going to say, I think that is mostly what the call is to deregulate net neutrality laws that are currently in place is that um, th that's the element of wanting to like level the playing field for competition. That's where that element comes into play. Um, and Mark Cuban has actually been one of the people who's very outspoken for deregulating um, the FCC in terms of net neutrality because he's like, you know, his argument is most people every day don't understand what it's like to operate a smaller tech company that is coming out with all of these online services um, and they absolutely cannot afford um, to operate at the same level as like Verizon or um, Time Warner, any of these other like, you know, AT&T, um, right. any other cable or any sort of ISP. Um, so his idea is that like if you eliminate certain types of regulations that it will allow smaller companies to compete with larger ISPs um, and other tech companies. Um, but again, there is no way to actually prove that's what's going to happen because the same argument was used in Europe. Right. Well, they're given the opportunity when they previously hadn't been. Right. Exactly. Um, so, but, that, so this is definitely something that we're going to have to like keep an eye on in the news cycle because I think that things that are this is a seemingly small thing in comparison to taxes or healthcare or any sort of like foreign war right the things that you normally watch for in the news as far as like national news but this is something that affects your daily life okay. um, and i mean a side effect from what you'll have to pay to access facebook um it's a, another aspect of this uh, larger umbrella news story is um the fact that what the fcc will eventually be doing um, is that it's going to treat ISPs as having insight into what consumers uh, were doing. So it's not sold to marketers or not sold to uh, anyone else, basically, to impact um, your behavior on the Internet. So because the like Title II classification that the previous 2015 legislation had implemented, because that is removed, the FTC uh, disallows ISPs from selling consumers' data. And uh, I think like a misinterpretation of what's going on here is that, oh, yeah, the FCC is punning to the FTC, which has no authority over the matter, which is incorrect. Uh, they're punning to the FTC to avoid um, culpability in what will eventually happen by, I don't know, AT&T and Time Warner merging, which is how this entire news story began. 
Right. Uh, so because the FTC, what I'm getting is because the FTC uh, doesn't allow the ISPs from selling consumers' data, um, that's why the FCC is uh, punning to the FTC. Right. And, a, and to, so that's the reason. Right. Yes, and you, and, and you touched on this, too, is that a lot of this, a lot, has to do with uh, this deal between Time Warner and AT&T. Yeah, it was the day after the, that uh, right. the Trump administration decided to sue that uh, this became a, a big Right, exactly. And so this is definitely something to keep an eye on, and I certainly will, um, because any legislation that's actually going to affect your daily life um, is certainly something to monitor. Um, and before I move off of the the domestic uh, the domestic news cycle, there's something that has been actually going on for months um, since Trump took office, really, um, that has gone like largely unreported because it's not very sexy news, but this is also something that will affect um, you know, how the law is implemented in red for the rest of my life and if I decided to have kids, their lives. Um, the Trump administration and, you know, GOP um, lawmakers have been working tirelessly to fill vacancies um, within the federal court system with ultra-conservative judges, most of whom who have little to no actual experience. Um, they've appointed something like 40 judges um, since Trump took office, which is the most amount of um, appointees from any administration ever. Um, this was something that was definitely set up by um, Mitch McConnell and other uh, senior uh, GOP senators. Um, but these Senate Republicans are confirming at an alarming rate um, numerous federal judges um, in preparation for like localized enforcement of uh, GOP laws um, and a conservative skew of the law. Um, as well as other, you know, uh, long-term effects. Um, it's something uh, that we'll have to continue to keep an eye on um, as federal judgeships are, like, a lifetime appointment, um, and this is something that, like, radically affects um, constitutional law across the country. Um, and this is, like I said, something that has gone largely unreported. Um, so until there's more research done on exactly what the long-term effects of these are, it is still always a good idea to call your senators and ask why the hell that they are confirming people who they have a law degree, but most of their work has been done writing on a right-wing legal blog, or their only actual work in the law has been as a clerk immediately out of law school or their only qualification is that they are married to someone within the White House Council. Like, these are not hypotheticals. These are actually some of the people that have been appointed to lifetime federal judgeships who have little legal experience, little litigation experience, and zero experience as a judge. Um, so again, call your senators and ask them. Don't tell them that you're upset. Ask them why the fuck they're doing this. Um, this is like, a, this is much wider. This, this is widespread in the sense that... Um, it's not as easy as uh, McConnell repealing President Obama's nomination to replace Antonin Scalia. This is like across the board. Right, and exactly. I mean, the Supreme Court is very important. It's where a lot of like top cases are argued. But, you know, circuit courts and other federal courts, this is where stuff that's like actually is going to affect your state or affect your life, this is where this shit happens. You know, and these are like, again, there are only nine Supreme Court justices, but we're talking about 40 judges already. Trump has been in an office for a year and has already appointed 40 judges. I mean, that's absolutely, absolutely fucking staggering. Um, so 
Call your senators. Maybe he's giving them all television shows. Yeah, may, honestly, he might be negotiating deals with them, uh, NBC, and this whole thing is going to tie into net neutrality, and you heard it on the cutaway first. But please, <laughs> for the fucking love of God, call your senators and tell them to stop confirming these fucking morons um, to federal judgeships. Um, and just as a closing story, I find this uh, incredibly interesting. Uh, found this story not long ago. Researchers have managed to connect a human brain to the Internet for the first time. Which is awesome. Yeah. It was not my brain, unfortunately. That'd be yeah, fucking yeah. awesome. Uh, so the, the Internet of Things uh, will eventually become even wider and more vast. It is coming. We'll all become machines sooner <laughs> or later. That's actually Austin's dream. To become a robot? Yep, and yeah, for everyone you're, else to become you're a robot. Entirely true. All right, everyone, stick around after this brief musical break, and we will be wrapping things up and giving you a special surprise. <laughs> Wish we were recording that whole last bit. <laughs> that been fucking great. Uh, well, it's been an exciting week since we all last spoke and talking to myself. Um, <laughs> I'm currently wearing my Blockheads chain. <laughs> cluck, cluck. <laughs> uh, Syria is still a mess. Whole bunch of feathers on the ground. <laughs> Congress is eating ass to help out their overlords on Wall Street. Max, did you do this? <laughs> and beyond. I, I don't know. Beyond the ass. Yeah, I don't know if I did this or not, but no, this, is, this is an odd reference to my new motorcycle gang that I recently started called uh, EAA. If you want to know more about it, get at me on Twitter. Yeah, try to discover what it means. <laughs> what does it mean? Or that's get at that. me on Twitter. Get at me on Twitter and I'll tell you, at Max Pegues, and I'll, uh, I'll tell you what EAA means. Um, so before we totally wrap things up here, um, it's been a slow week in Clooney news, so I have scoured the web for things that you're not going to see in the lying, crooked, mainstream media that we're here to bring for you. So recently, Harvard scientists have been launching weather balloons into the stratosphere to spray reflective aerosols aerosols, as a means to repel sunlight, thus... Reducing the effects of global warming. Um, this field is actually called uh, geoengineering and is becoming like a leading field actually in combating global warming. Um, few people have actually heard of geoengineering, but the ones who have <laughs> have got some real insight on the matter. Um, if you search through uh, blogs, forums, um, and the writings of our brilliant colleague Alex Jones um, on InfoWars, uh, it reveals the truth that liberals are sending these balloons into the sky to spray chemicals that will allow the deep state to control our minds. That is right. Is he uh, confusing this with the uh, Assad regime uh, dropping balloons of chlorine on on He seriously people? thinks that's what this is, maybe, but he's right. Because once you ingest enough of these deadly chemicals, the government will be able to turn you gay, force you to vote liberal, and you'll be forced to stop taking your InfoWars-branded multivitamins, thus defunding Alex Jones's multi-million dollar empire. Other conspiracy theorists, I mean truth-tellers, have identified certain cumulus collections in the sky that they call chemtrails. Uh, which is actually a serious conspiracy theory. You should all look up chemtrails. Uh, they look like what we might call like jet spray or whatever and allegedly contain the chemicals that linger in the atmosphere that we are breathing in. 
I watched uh, a video on that last night. Yeah, <laughs> this is what we do in preparation for recording. We just uh, go watch InfoWars. Uh, it was on uh, videos. It wasn't. It wasn't on InfoWars. <laughs> Uh, chemtrails, though, <laughs> it's been widely debunked. Um, Despunked. Yeah, de- <laughs> and uh, I'm just like a, a thrice over uh, humanities major and not a scientist, but uh, from what I can tell, geoengineering actually seems to be a pretty uh, cost efficient way uh, to hopefully reduce the effects of, uh, of global warming. But what do I know? Um, I'm actually just, I, Today, who the hell knows what's right and what's wrong? So I might just go with Alex Jones on this one. I think I'm going to give Alex Jones the win um, on chemtrails Grace and Jones on geoengineering. <laughs> Thanks so, so, so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. What? Please be sure to follow The Cutaway on Facebook. Search I hear the cutaway. snakes in the grass. All in one word. So I'm going to cut this shit. Also, subscribe to our channel on iTunes, Fuck SoundCloud. Google Play, club our brand new tune-in account, and when everywhere else up, you like find your podcast. Search the cutaway, all one word. Yes, remember when you search for the cutaway, it is all one word. C-U-T-A-W-A-Y, not two words. We're getting our stacks up, y'all. Yeah, fuck my money up, so now I can't re-up. That's why I'm doing this. <laughs> all right, everybody, until next time. Au revoir, suckers.